right, all right, all right. Welcome to the Cavish Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavis. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, we're all familiar with the supply chain issues affecting much of our daily lives, from the grocery store to electronics to trying to buy a new car. In terms of being a customer relying on those same domestic and international supply chains, the U.S. military is no different. With needs ranging from a vast array of spare parts to high-performance computers, we'll talk with a leading expert on how those issues could affect the defense establishment and what risks might lie ahead. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. HMS Queen Elizabeth returned to her home port of Portsmouth, England on December 9th to end Britain's most ambitious naval deployment in decades. The ship was the centerpiece of the Royal Navy's Carrier Strike Group 21, which deployed in May from Portsmouth. The group operated across the Mediterranean Sea, in the Indian Ocean and Arabian Sea, and into the Western Pacific, where Queen Liz visited Japan and Guam. The deployment had a distinct multinational flavor, with a U.S. destroyer and Dutch frigate integrated into the strike group, along with a U.S. Marine squadron as one of the two F-35B Joint Strike Fighter squadrons on board the carrier. Speaking of British F-35Bs, the Joint Strike Fighter that crashed into the sea November 17th while trying to take off from Queen Elizabeth has been recovered from the Eastern Mediterranean by a combined British-U.S.-Italian salvage effort. Multiple media also reported that a crew member of the Queen Elizabeth has been arrested for leaking video of the crash on social media. The commanding officer of Navy SEAL Team 8 died December 7th in Norfolk from injuries sustained during a training accident in Virginia Beach, Virginia on December 4th. Commander Brian Bourgeois was 43 and a 20-year veteran of Navy and Special Warfare Service. The Navy provided few details of the fatal incident, citing an ongoing investigation, but did say that the tragedy occurred during a fast rope training evolution. Out in Hawaii, the new destroyer USS Daniel Inouye was formally commissioned into service on December 8th at Pearl Harbor. The ship's name honors the late senator, a World War II hero who received the Medal of Honor and who, during more than a half century in Washington, was a tireless advocate for Hawaii and for the Navy and the U.S. military in Hawaii. At the other end of the cycle of life for ships, the Los Angeles-class attack submarine USS Providence was placed in commission in reserve on December 2nd at Puget Sound Naval Shipyard a move which will lead to the ship's full decommission and scrapping. The Providence was commissioned in 1985 and served for 36 years. On December 10th, the amphibious assault ship USS Iwo Jima left Mayport Naval Station in Florida to shift home port to Norfolk. The move reverses a decision made over a decade ago to shift two large amphibious ships from Norfolk to Florida. In November 2020, the amphibious ship New York shifted back to Norfolk. In exchange, several Norfolk-based and newly constructed destroyers have moved their home port to Mayport. And that's a look at naval news this week. Sal Mercogliano is an associate professor of history at Campbell University in North Carolina and one of the foremost experts on the American Merchant Marine and how it relates to military and maritime policies. Welcome to the show, Dr. Mercogliano. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, you've been watching and commenting regularly on the supply chain issues that are that have unfolded in recent months. What is your take on where things stand here in mid-December 2021? What what what's getting worse? What's getting better? Well, we're really at an unprecedented event here in terms of the supply chain crisis. Since COVID had hit, 
what we've seen is a, a change in buying patterns by Americans. So we've had that substantial shift that took place. And now we have a spike in demand. And the issue we're, we're seeing here is, is a couple. Obviously, number one, we're witnessing the issue at the ports. The, the most probably common image that people have seen is the line of vessels off the port of LA and Long Beach, although now they're pushing them way offshore so you won't see them as close as it was. But that issue is still kind of prevalent right now. The other is issue that, we have is that, is, is, that, is that a direct effect just to try to get it out of the public's mind? the local news helicopters won't see them or something? I, I actually think it is. I, th I think it's, it's, it's twofold. They could, have been done, they could have done this a year ago, but now they're doing it. And when the Biden administration put out their supply chain task force blog that they started in November, the very first metric they had in there was reducing the number of ships off the port of LA and Long Beach. And so now we have the ships, supposedly 150, although they're sitting about 500 miles off the coast, which is a terrible position to be in in the North Pacific coming into the winter time. So you have that. The second issue you have obviously is the inland transportation system, which again is a DOD military issue because we're relying on truckers, highways, roads, rail, you name it to be able to move goods in and out of the port. And what we're seeing here is the system is maxed out. It is stressed beyond what we would normally see. And there's a lot of reasons behind it, but I would argue that one of the biggest is we have not invested in all aspects of our transportation infrastructure. And when you experience growth beyond what is foreseen, this is what we, what we have right now. So, you know, the military has been trying to ameliorate some of these supply chain issues, for example, opening up the port of Winemi, opening up Port Winemi in California to take some of this uh, congestion out of the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. Does that help? Does it make a difference? Is it just kind of PR stuff? Should more be done? Well, I mean, the opening of Port Wyoming is interesting. It opens up a wharf and more importantly, it opens up some laydown area. And so what they're using Port Wyoming for is to bring in what we call self-sustaining container ships, container ships that have their own cranes that can offload. We know a lot of companies, Amazon, Walmart, Ikea, Home, Home Depot, basically large box stores have been able to charter vessels that can move high priority, low density cargo and put it on a very small vessel. The problem is the vast bulk of material still comes in on these large container ships and they have to use shore-based facilities. And unless you're using those shore-based facilities with the gantry cranes, you can't offload the, the majority of container ships. So it, it's an assistance, but one of the things that we've seen that has happened over the past 20 years, or actually maybe a little further, is the DOD has gotten rid of excess rail cars. They have gotten rid of chassis, things that could have been used to supplement the commercial side that would have been very handy right now to ease the burden. For example, one of the issues that the Port of LA and Long Beach and all ports have is getting rid of these empty containers. They're clogging the yard. And one of the big issues they have is about 15 to 18% of the rolling stock in Southern California is being taken up by loaded or empty containers. And if there had been a pool of ch uh, chassis available like we used to have with DOD, that could have been something that can be used to supplement. Wainimi is, is, is a good element, but it's a very small drop in the bucket. Right, right. Well, should that have um, that, I, I guess, loss of chassis and that loss of the ability to move things around uh, from the DOD's perspective, 
Um, should that be something that is incorporated into the Defense Production Act or some other kind of act to uh, to prevent something like this from happening in the future? Or, you know, in your opinion, is this sort of an, you know, an act of God, a one and done, and, and that there really isn't a big lesson learned here? No, you know, one of the reasons that I've been studying this as much as I have and, and watching it is because this is about the closest you're going to get to assimilation of, of a great power struggle in terms of logistics at sea. What we're seeing here is this is the global transportation system is strained to a limit. You know, there's an irony here that that the, the creation of containerization came about by Malcolm McLean, and he could not sell that idea of intermodal containers at all. And where he sold it was to the U.S. military for Vietnam. Because of the backlog of ships off Vietnam, there were 122 ships sitting off of Vietnam in November of 1965, and he sold this concept of 11 container ships that can go in and move all the goods for the U.S. military. And plus, it wasn't just the ships. It was the cranes. It was the chassis. It was the containers. It was an intermodal system. And, and what we're seeing right now and what DOD needs to be paying attention to is that they have to, in case of a contingency right now, go against this flow, which would be very difficult to do. And all the constraints we're seeing in the ports, on the roads, on the rail, in the air, would be magnified in having to deploy a force 7,000 miles across the Pacific, for example. You know, Greg, Greg Easterbrook just recently wrote a book called The Blue Age. And one of the things he talks about, which is really essential here, is that a lot of this doing is, is a result of the U.S. Navy, but in a positive way. The U.S. Navy has made freedom of the seas. They have allowed the world's commercial vessels to flow freely across the ocean. And I heard a talk by a very influential person in the commercial side, and it really floored me because he was asked, what's the greatest threat looming on the horizon for the commercial shipping? And it's not COVID. It's not anything you would think of. It's, it's that the U.S. Navy will back away from the oceans, and that could raise concerns in the future. So let, let's pull on that a little bit. We were lucky enough to have Greg on as a guest. Uh, I guess it's been six or seven weeks now, Chris. Um, but let, let's pull on that idea of the United States Navy um, as, you know, in their role of keeping open the world's shipping lanes. Um, first of all, I mean, do, do you agree with that? And I mean, it would seem obvious, but I, I, I don't want to make that assumption. Do, do you agree with that? And is if the United States Navy was to pull back, would we see these types of supply chain issues or do you think the Chinese or somebody else would, would fall in and fill that vacuum? Um, I, I kind of want to start there. And then there's a couple other questions that I think Chris and I want to pull on uh, with that as the Colonel. I, I think number one, that the, the Navy does deserve all the accolades for that. I mean, it's a unique environment that the world operates on. You know, one of the reasons that commercial one of the reasons we've benefited, and not just the United States, but the world in general has benefited from cheap transportation is because navies, nations did not have to invest in defense for the world at sea. Yeah, we've had issues of piracy, but that was small scale. And, and so the U.S. Navy has provided, along with its allies, this, this magnificent form in which we can do global trade. And through technology, through the inter, in, invention of containerization and intermodalism, we have basically diminished the cost to move goods across the world seas. In the case of China, I think it's a very interesting issue. If you look at what China is doing, and I know a lot of people want to look at China as the next big Cold War threat looming on the horizon, but China is focused on its trade. If you look where China is going with their Navy and what they're doing from the establishing of the base in Djibouti to the new potential one in Equatorial uh, Guiana, 
they are following their trade routes. They would fall in there very quickly, I would argue, not to dominate the ocean, but to ensure that their trade is always moving. You have to remember the Chinese merchant marine is the second largest in the world. I, I mean, if you look in terms of registry for China and, and Hong Kong, they have the second largest merchant marine in the world. They have the second largest Navy in the world. The U.S. is number one Navy in the world. We're the number 21 merchant marine in the world. And it makes you really wonder who's the real sea power here. Is, is it us or is it the Chinese in many cases? And the Chinese would argue it's them. They're executing soft power, economic power on the high seas. My last question, and then I'll throw it to Chris. Do you think that as we have gone through, um, as we're as we're going through these supply chain issues, um, and when I was at the Naval Academy and, and a junior officer in the Navy, um, folks pointed to the longshoreman strike as a um, in California as, as a real example of like what would happen uh, if the the supply lines got clogged up and if the Navy didn't exist. Will this be the next example that both industry um, and uh, the the national security uh, leadership points to as a reason for wanting to have a strong Navy and a strong uh, merchant marine? I mean, is it obvious to them at this point or will it take folks like you to kind of help them get there? I, I don't know if it's obvious or not, Chris, to tell you the truth. I, I think we really need to hammer this point in many ways. There was an interesting story in Breaking Defense the other day about the fact that the MARAD and DOT and the Transcom efforts to refund and recapitalize Sealift has really fallen flat. And if you look at the military sealift fleet, it is 40 years old. It is, I would argue, in critical condition right now in many ways. And the, the idea that we can adequately sustain and support and project a force is questionable based on not just our military sealift, the 54 ships we rely on to do that in the reserve fleet, but the less than 180 deep draft ships that are left in the U.S. Merchant Marine, the pool of mariners that are left, look at the recent report that just came out about the US Merchant Marine Academy and issues associated with that, and the ability to sustain our naval forces across and our military forces this period across a 7,000 mile ocean that is the Pacific. You know, we have fought most of our wars with a base right in our backyard to do it. You know, we weren't far from Bahrain, we weren't far from Subic Bay, we weren't far from Japan when we fought in the Persian Gulf in Vietnam and Korea. Ask the British about the Falklands, and they will tell you the biggest problem they had was going 7,000 miles across the Atlantic. So you referenced, you know, the, the sea lift ships today um, are long past their prime to be charitable about it. So a great many of these ships date from the 70s and the 80s. Uh, there were a number of steamships that were from the 80s that are starting to go away. They're almost gone. Uh, break bulk ships. Um and there are challenges with all of them, and of course, any old ship. But if you look at commercial fleets today, uh, it's it's unusual now in any major port to see too many ships that were not built in this century, or even in the last decade. The uh, the commercial shippers are constantly recapitalizing their fleets. What that also means is that there's been an awful lot of um, used shipping on the market that has largely gone to scrap. Uh, why isn't, uh, what, is, what is stopping MARAD, uh, the Maritime Administration, uh, from buying up these ships, from buying up things in bulk? They're, I mean, since the great waves of the 80s and 90s, really, they're not doing it. 
DOD and Marriott missed a golden opportunity just prior to this taking place, COVID and, and the supply chain, ships were being sold. I mean, they were, they, there was a, a depression in, 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 the, in the field. There were vessels laid up and they went out, did market surveys. They were all set to do it. They had money allocated and they didn't move. They just would not move fast enough. And then, you know, now it's come out that they're going to go ahead. They're going to buy the two seal of ships that have been programmed, I think, about two years ago now to do it. But the money they have programmed for it will never be enough to buy vessels because everything that's floating right now is being chartered to carry cargo because of the demand that's out there. And I would argue that, number one, it's flexibility. They're just not quick and flexible enough to go ahead and do it. The military is putting military level requirements on civilian ships, and that's not going to work. These are sea lift vessels. They have to be built to commercial standards. The other element you have going on is is 94% of all the world's shippings are built in three countries. It's China, Korea, and Japan. That's it. The rest of the other 6% are spread around the world. We build 0.2% of the world's commercial ships. And we have basically abrogated that. We, we, we decided in the 80s and 90s to, to end the programs that allowed us to build vessels like that. The ships that were built under those programs, when they met the end of their service life or, or the companies were ready to turn them in, would turn them into the ready reserve force. That doesn't happen anymore. And so what we wind up with is having to buy used vessels on the open market. The problem with used vessels on the open market is they're being sold for a reason. The, the, the shelf life, the operational life of vessels today are not like the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. They have 15 to 20 years. They're designed to be recycled. And whatever we're going to buy out in the open market now is being sold for a reason. And, and it's going to be really expensive to get them up and running. So back to what Chris was talking about in terms of like keeping their sea lanes open and, and free trade, this is all well and good, but there are other aspects to the world trade, world maritime trade situation that are also risky, threatening, potentially potential problems. Among them, everything is kind of coagulating into larger and larger elements. For example, the uh, a lot of the container ships are built now are 20,000 and more 23,000 uh, TEUs and TEU folks is that when you're driving along the road and there's a big 18 wheeler in front of you and he's dragging along a nice big uh, container behind him that's what those are they come right off ships and you see these ships that come into port um, stacked high with the 20,000 TEU, 20,000 containers is an awful lot. Um, and you, you've got ships carrying up to 23,000 now. So you don't have as many ships. You might have spread that out over different hulls. Now it's over one hull. One of those ships sinks. It's a huge impact, as people discovered when the Ever Given, one of these great big box ships, was stuck in the uh, Suez Canal for several weeks. And the cargo on that ship was going all over the world, not just to Rotterdam. Um, but you have that, but you also have these three large alliances that are controlling most of the global market. And you've got uh, something called 2M, which is Maersk and, Mer- and Mediterranean shipping. Another one called Ocean Alliance. Costco, the Chinese, the big Chinese uh, shipping company. CMA, CGM is a French company, more or less. All these companies are more or less when you talk about what country they are. I'm sorry, companies are, and Evergreen, which is a Thai, which is a Taiwan organization. And then you have the Alliance with Hapag, Lloyd, Wan, Yang, Ming, and uh, HMM. 
Um, these are these are where the bulk, over ninety percent of the world's shipping is is being controlled by these three alliances. Uh, there was a federal investigation of them that in 2017. It went on for a couple of years. It went away. Um, not entirely clear why it went away, but um, this is its own risk. Uh, the Chinese are a major player in at least one of these, and they have they have their they have parts of other companies in here. These are all multinational companies for the most part. Very hard to trace the the, the ownership. What 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 kind of risks do, do do we face from that situation, which is a commercial entity? This isn't military. This isn't the U.S. Navy keeping over the open the seas. This is the sea the sea lanes being used by really a handful of alliances that are controlling world commerce. Right, and all that took place. We saw that take place as a result of the Shipping Act of 1984 and the Ocean Reform Act of 1998, where we basically deregulated ocean shipping. You know, way back in 1916, we had created this entity called the Shipping Board to make sure that fair rates and, and our, our cargo is going to be moved on vessels coming in and out of our ports. It was a big, own, it was a big uh, impetus for the creation of what was known as the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, the Jones Act. But now we don't. And as you mentioned, those top nine companies and those three alliances, they're all overseas international corporations. What we saw was you know, back in 1990, during the Persian Gulf War, we counted on seven American shipping companies, Sealand, uh, American President's Lines, Central Gulf, Waterman, Farrell, Likes, to haul 3,700 containers a week over to the Persian Gulf to sustain our military. Understand, most of those companies are gone today. They're gone. They don't exist anymore. And instead, what we would have to rely on, we talk about the roll-on, roll-off. That seems to be the issue. We always talk about military sea lift. But the primary thing we need is sustainment. Those boxes of containers coming in with all that follow-on. Marines are great. A Marine MEU is great. You know, it's, it's fantastic. But after they're out of supplies for 30 days, they need that sustainment coming in. And the question is, can we count on these other nations for this? And I think what you saw in the cruise ship industry is these companies have gotten big. Consolidation is the word in shipping. Consolidated ports, consolidated companies, consolidated ships. I'm not going to buy three small vessels when I can buy an ultra large container vessel with 25,000 boxes on board. And the question becomes, will they risk their vessels in time of war? Yeah, they're, they're allies of us. They're Japan, they're France, they're, they're Germany, but these are international corporations. And again, the question becomes, are we confident that in the case of a conflict, we will have the sustainment necessary to support us? And again, their best interest is the bottom line. Shipping companies today, today, as of, as of November 1st, have made over $120 billion in profits. Understand, that is three times more than they've made in profits over the past decade. So in 10 months, they made three times as much as they made in a decade. And their priority is their bottom line. And, and, and again, one of the things that's nice about having an American shipping company is that, number one, it hires Americans. It uses American infrastructure. Those shipyards, those repair yards, those, all those facilities are used not just by them, but also the Navy. And I think one of the things I'd like to critique is the Navy forgot their roots. They forgot that they were created out of a merchant marine in many ways, literally from the docks of Philadelphia in 1775. And, and without that commercial element, we see it. Look at where the, Jap uh, the Chinese are building 003 carrier. It's right alongside container ships in commercial shipyards. So is this ex has this exposed 
um, I guess the seams or the gaps or the insufficiencies of just-in-time logistics or just-in-time supply? Um, or is this simply lessons learned that can be incorporated in, into that approach um, as we move further into a competitive um, you know, not, uh, international security environment. You know, what what are the big takeaways either for the the Department of Defense or, or for major companies that um, that need to mine the the last two years for every possible lesson learned? Well, I, I mean, I think the just in time concept again that was a Toyota concept that came out a long time ago, right? But I, I think that issue has resonated within the military because we have operated our logistics in kind of a just in time logistics. And one of the things we know about this is there are thin margins. When you all of a sudden alter the way people purchase things or increase demand or, or decrease demand, the system doesn't react very well to it. And there's not a lot of margin, especially to increase. And it exposes a lot of dangers and liabilities. Again, I, I think the military should be watching the situation critically. They really should because it really exposes the danger of logistics not coming to the United States, but going out of the United States. And how can we sustain that? Because what you're seeing right now is, and this is the danger looming forward, is the port of LA and Long Beach are close, I would argue, to having a break. I, I, literally, I think that they can't move any more cargo out of them than they're doing. They've done a tr fantastic job. We've got record numbers coming out of there. But the system is so overtaxed that it really is having a hard time keeping up with it. And, and this is why inflation and other issues are coming to play here. But it, it also exposes for the military to argue a danger. Look at production efforts, how much government production, how much goods that are going into military supply bases and military uh, construction are being held up on ships off the coast of LA and Long Beach right now, or Savannah or Houston or New York, New Jersey. Well, great discussion, and I commend our listeners to Sal's very fine vidcast, if that's the right word, on YouTube uh, called What's Going On With Shipping. It's an excellent uh, discussion and interviews. Our guest today has been Dr. Sal Mercagliano, and thank you very much, Sal. Great talk. Thank you. I'll hear this. I'll hear this. Okay, time for Squawk Box. Sea lift. Everybody talks about it. Getting anyone to do something about it is another issue entirely. Mr. Savello has some thoughts. Thanks, Chris. When contemplating competition or conflicts with China, most navalists worry about high-end capability. They fret over technology, numbers, and range. And all that makes sense, but it's not what keeps me up at night. What causes me sleepless nights and added gray hair is the topic we just discussed with Dr. Mercagliano our lack of lift and ability to carry out effective pre and post-conflict logistics. I'm worried we don't have the right number of merchant vessels, the right type of coordination, nor the political will to quickly grow both. The COVID era problems we have seen over the last two years should be a reminder that unless we address supply chain and logistics shortcomings now, we will be in real trouble when the balloon goes up. About major port capacities, better teaming between military and commercial logistics efforts, Jones Act restrictions, and the role of our maritime administrator, just to name a few. Let's not miss this moment. We must mine the COVID lessons so we are ready for potential conflict with the Chinese. Great topic, Chris. And of course, the Chinese are doing exactly what we're talking about. All right. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, 
this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening, folks, and bye-bye.